Welcome to the Innovations in Anti-Aging Living Show with Dr. Ann Trong. Here's where we'll explore how to live your best life with stem cells. Listen in to hear key opinion leaders, mentors, motivators, and other guests discuss about stem cells innovations. Stem cells will redefine medicine. This show will lead you to slow down aging and thrive to live the life you've always wanted to live. Hosted by Dr. Ann Trong, the international best-selling author of Erectile Dysfunction Fix Using PRP to Treat ED. And she has been recognized as Entrepreneur of the Year. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164. Hello, this is Dr. Ann Trong, and I am so glad. And I have Dr. William Morell here. He is an orthopedic surgeon, specialized in orthopedic sports and regenerative medicine. He is currently the chief science officer at Emerist Healthcare. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. Diplomat of the American Board Orthopedic Surgery and Orthopedic Sports Medicine and the American Academy of Board Regenerative Medicine and member of the American Orthopedic Society Sports Medicine. He trained at Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia and did his internship and residency at Tulane University, New Orleans and fellowship in shoulder and knee, the orthopedic specialty hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah and he had a Harvard Business School Executive Education in Business Innovation and Global Healthcare. And he is a, an international advisor of the Board for Bone and Joint Journal and the principal reviewer of the American Journal of Sports Medicine and co-founder of the Biologic Orthopedic Journal in Dallas. That is a lot in the mouthful. I'm, I'm almost like tongue twisted after that, but I'm not quite done with uh, what he's done in this world. And I am like, I'm just amazed at what he can do. But I like to say other things too, is that he's an absolutely nice guy. He has a passion to be a clinician, an educator, a researcher, and he performs investigations and lecture all over the world. And I'm glad that he's here today with me. So yes. welcome, Dr. Bill. Oh, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Truong. Uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to sit down with me and for us to get to know each other better and also so that uh, I can share a little bit more about me as a person and a human being. Yes, so today what I like to talk about is the, the doctor, the man, and the legend. All right, yeah. so... Uh, believe it or not, Dr. Bill and Dr. Don Buford and Dr. Alan Mishra are really kind of like the orthopedic founders of um, about orthopedic biologic. And so, um, and it's great uh, that you're here and I'm going to be hopefully interviewing the other two as well in the near future. So tell us a little bit about yourself and you know how you get to be the orthopedic surgeon. Well, um it's uh, uh, my life has been kind of a very convoluted uh, sort of a life. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, kind of a, a middle middle class family. My dad was a high school principal. My mom was an accountant. We did have some people in our family that uh, worked in medicine, uh, but not really, uh, not really a lot. Uh, not really close relatives that. Uh, 
practice medicine. And so as a child, I always thought that I would get a doctorate in something, but I thought I would just be a scientist working in a lab. I really never thought about becoming a doctor until much later. And, um, you know, coming out of Detroit, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I changed my major five times in undergrad, and I finally uh, decided on uh, doing chemistry. I always liked chemistry, but uh, it took me a long way to get to that point. I graduated uh, from a historically black university uh, in Alabama called Tuskegee Institute. And it was a fantastic experience. It opened up a lot of doors and uh, opportunities for me. And so I'm greatly indebted and thankful that I went there. And um, so I, I didn't decide to practice medicine until after I had worked. I worked for Johnson & Johnson in Raritan, New Jersey for a very short time in drug discovery. I worked for a really great guy and it was fun to work with him. However, uh, it just wasn't uh, uh, meant uh, for me to stay in that area. Uh, I luckily got a, a really good fellowship that I applied for that I didn't think I would get and that allowed me to go to grad school about three months after I finished uh, my undergraduate degree. And uh, the funny thing is that I didn't even apply to grad schools. And one of the, uh, there was a lecture by the chairman at the University of Tennessee that came to our school, and I just filled out an interest card, and apparently they accepted as an, applica as an application. I called them up and they said, uh, you know, I said, can I come down there for grad school? And I said, I have my own money, I have my own fellowship, I have a GE, you know, graduate fellowship. And, uh, and they said, sure, come on down. And uh, so you cold called them and got in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cold called them and got in, and uh, and so because I didn't plan on doing medicine, I I didn't have all the prerequisites. So so I went to grad school. I did all my grad school things, but also was able to do all the prerequisites and take the MCAT and you know that sort of thing. And uh, and then I you know ended up going to Temple in Philadelphia. Um, it was the best school that I got accepted to, and so um, it was a great experience, a lot of hands-on experience. Uh, the funny thing uh, is, is that uh, uh, I. Uh, the funny thing is, is that I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I studied medicine. I knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon because I had volunteered at a hospital uh, for a year and a half while I was in grad school. I went through every department, and after I saw an orthopedic surgery, uh, surgery uh, it was so engaging, it, you know, hammers, saws, and chisels, uh, and uh, it just really uh, uh, just captured my imagination, and uh, I knew I wanted to do orthopedics. Um, uh, and uh, Temple was a good place for orthopedics, and I had very good mentorship. Uh, I did a lot of research as a medical student, uh, published papers as a student, uh, got grants, and uh, uh, so it was a great experience. I uh, had a really good mentor there, uh, and he certainly helped me to transition uh, from Temple into orthopedics, which is you know pretty difficult in the U.S. to 
get a spot in orthopedics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then one thing led to the, to the next. I ended up going down the Tulane in New Orleans. It was uh, a painful experience. Why was it painful? Uh, it was painful because um, it, it's a two-edged sword. At Tulane, it's not uh, really a gentleman's program, so to speak. We were pretty much taking care of all the trauma coming into Charity Hospital. And, you know, our uh, faculty gave us a lot of independence. Uh, and so, as a second-year resident, you were a primary surgeon um, pretty quickly. And, and it's a great thing because you get hands-on experience. It's not so great because you can probably be controlled a little bit more. Um, and so, but it was a great experience overall. And it, it kind of complemented what we did at Temple. Uh, we had, uh, at Temple, we had a, a couple of really good trauma surgeons. Uh, one was named uh, um, uh, Michael Badalino and Robert Buckman. They're both uh, Army Reserve officers, and uh, they ended up uh, spending a lot of time in Iraq one in the Gulf War one. And so they had major influence on me as well. I, uh, on my trauma rotations at Temple, which were just superb uh, as far as from an experience standpoint, uh, these, these two surgeons let me do a whole lot, a lot more than what I even saw the interns and residents doing. Wow. And so it also influenced me to consider a career in the military. And so this is, uh, uh, so during all this time, I'm also, uh, have been an active reserve officer. Uh, I'll complete uh, uh, 22 years uh, on July 1st. And, uh, and so done a lot of good things. Uh, military has been very good to me. And it's uh, advanced my career significantly. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. So, yeah, so so when I'm around, I know you're part of the world, Fredericksburg, because I used to spend quite a bit of time at Fort A.P. Hill. Uh, oh, yeah, doing yeah, Doing yeah. all, all sorts of things. Uh-huh. Yeah, so. That's right. Yeah. So you went from Tulane, yeah. uh, went from Temple to Tulane, yeah. and then did fellowship. Uh, as well. Yeah. So by the time you finish, you're like 40 or something, you spend all your time in training. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so I was a, a little bit behind uh, my co- my colleagues. I started med school at 26. Uh, most of uh, uh, our co- my colleagues, actually at Temple, which was so attractive, was that we had an older class. We had a, as a whole, the class wasn't the typical 21, 22-year-old the average age was really like 24. Uh, So it was an interesting dynamic. We actually had two 42-year-olds in our class. And uh, and so, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so, yeah, what were we talking, what what was your question? Well, the question, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, what's what happened so far, we don't remember what we just said. Well, the question, uh, the question was, you know, you did a lot of training. Yeah. So then, when did the fun started? Well, after fellowship and so forth, what was your first real job where you were a real orthopedic surgeon on your own? Yeah, well, my first uh, job out of fellowship was really kind of a default job because uh, I had, you know, my, my second wife uh, was from Washington, D.C., well, actually from Maryland. 
and she didn't want to go anywhere else but the DC area you know even being in Baltimore was not good enough or being in Loudoun County in Virginia wasn't good enough you know we had to live in DC and so out of fellowship uh, I took a job uh, in DC and had the unfortunate thing happen like a month before I finished my fellowship get the contract I think everything is great we you know getting along great with the partners at, in the practice is a pretty nice sized group and uh, the contract I got was you know a lot different than what we had discussed and already it was a pretty low contract uh, because there's so many orthopedic surgeons in DC you know and it's a nice place to live you know I think these guys take advantage of that and so I got this contract that was, you know, it was so low, I couldn't need it. It would be pretty much impossible to survive. And so I had a discussion with these guys and they said, well, this is a contract. So basically I thought I had a job and a month before I'm finishing my fellowship, I didn't have a job. And so I happened to do a little locums. It was like a really good locums. It was in Aberdeen, South Dakota and it paid $2,000 a day. <laughs> and so it was just a good locum to do, uh, take, take a few days off from work. And, uh, and so the day I showed up in this town, the, the signing bonus, the, they, like that, the recruiter was at the office and she said, you know, do, are you looking for a job? And I was like, I'm not really looking to come here, but, you know, the, but the job, I mean, the signing bonus was higher than what I was going to get paid in D.C. <laughs> and so, so it kind of, I didn't have a job. So, you know, I said, well, you know, maybe it was a very well-paid job. And the other thing, it was a pure sports medicine job, too. Wow. Which was very, very uh, unlikely, especially for a junior guy, unless you're just you know, have the luck to be lined up with a, a sports job from the beginning. And so... Uh, and this was where? This is in Aberdeen, South Dakota. South Dakota? So it wasn't in D.C. at all? No, no. Because oh I, I didn't have a job, so... Yeah. Uh, and so I talked my, my wife in to, uh, to do it. I said, look, we just do... It's a hardship tour, and we just go there, and, you know, we try to find something else, and we just you know, because I don't have another job. And it's, it takes a lot of time to find a, a job. And so, um, and then what complicated that after is as soon as I got there, I got deployed uh, <laughs> overseas uh, with the Army Reserve. And so... so to that, where? Uh, I, the first time uh, I got deployed to, to Kosovo. Oh. And uh, this was uh, 2003. And... Um, and it, it was uh, not, I didn't do very much. Uh, we did, I, I did uh, get my first trip to Germany uh, because they weren't, wouldn't allow me to operate in country. So they wanted me to take all the patients to Germany and operate on them there. there. And so we did that. That was a lot of fun. And uh, then I came back and it was a really good first job actually. Um, patients were great. They're very sporty, uh, great soccer there. We had three universities I took care of. So basically every day I was covering some sport. Um, I covered swimming too. You know, I, I used to be a swimmer. So yeah, it was a great first job. And um, at Aberdeen, right? Yeah, Aberdeen, uh -huh. yeah. Learned how to fly there, 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I had a lot of fun. Yeah. How long were you there? I was there uh, two years. Two years. And, um, uh, and, and then, you know, then we had pretty much high, uh, high tempo deployment with the reserve. And so two years later, I got, you know, um, uh, deployed again, but this time backfill uh, to D.C. Oh, deployed back to D.C. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Kind of de- default back to where you wanted to be in the first yeah, place. Yeah, so it just all kind of worked out. Yeah. So yeah. what you do in D.C. then? Yeah, so, uh, uh, well, actually, I wasn't in D.C. I was actually in the Tidewater area at first, mm-hmm. and uh, I stayed down there for about nine months. And then um, uh, then they transferred me to D.C., Fort Belvoir. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, um, then, um, again, it was, it was a good experience. It's all sports medicine. Uh, got to work uh, with their little non-operative sports medicine fellowship. And so it was a good experience. And I stayed with them for, I don't know, I think six months. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then I got found. Then my unit that I've been with for ten years found me there, and then I got connected to a really good uh, unit in the D.C. area, and uh, and I stayed with them for about ten years. Wow! Yeah. So you've been with the Army Reserves during that whole time? No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I stayed uh, until uh, um, October, October of two thousand seven, uh, and then. Uh, shortly after that uh, is when I, you know, came overseas. Okay. Uh, so how did that decision come about from from Fort Belvoir uh, Reserve to 07 and then overseas to Dubai? Well, I did, I did a little, I did some work in the D.C. area. Uh, uh, nothing, uh, I was doing uh, contract work mm-hmm. initially uh, and not really more trauma related. Uh-huh. Uh, but a little bit of sports, but more trauma related, and uh, but uh, before that, I um, uh, when I was a resident uh, Tulane, I uh, I was the second uh, orthopedic overseas health volunteers overseas uh, uh, fellow, uh, um, you know, and, and this fellowship is for people that get experience overseas, but they don't go to a developed country, they go to a, a developing country. And so the first person was this lady named Heather Brown from UCSF. She went to Transkei, and I read an article about her in uh, um, one of, uh, I think, I, I, can't, I think, can't remember the journal, and, and it, immediately I wanted to do it. Mm. And... Uh, and so during my residency, I went over, I went to Ethiopia uh, as a fourth year resident, and it was a great experience. And uh, at that point, I knew I wanted to, uh, you know, at some point work overseas after I finished all my board certifications. Hmm. And so uh, finished my boards in 2005, uh, finished my sports boards in 2007. And uh, and then I started looking for I started looking for jobs. Actually, I started looking in two thousand six when I was uh, deployed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And um, um, yeah. So. So how did you end up at uh, finding in Dubai? Then? Dubai. Well, actually, uh, I'm also a squash player, and uh, at the two thousand and six nationals 
in New Haven, Connecticut. I met this general squash player. Yeah, I'm a squash player. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Olympic level squash no, player. No, 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 just uh, uh, skill level. You you can play age group or skill level. Oh, and so I was playing skill level. Yeah. So, um, so at so at nationals, I met this general surgeon that was working. Um, that was working in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and um, he's from Florida, but he would go there for two weeks out of the month and then come back to the U.S. He wasn't practicing in Florida. This was during the time that there was a, a malpractice crisis there, where the malpractice yes, was like 300,000 or something a year, and so he decided not to practice there. So he would just go do bariatric cases in Malaysia. Ah. you know for two weeks and then come back to the US and so he mentioned that the hospital had uh, they had a group of orthopedists that just left in Malaysia yeah oh my goodness and so they said that uh, maybe you know you'd be interested and so I you know explored it Uh, I found out who the doctors were that left and I contacted them and um, you know pretty much saw it wasn't a great situation and um, and the same company uh, that was helping me the headhunter company that was helping me there they found a job for me in Singapore um, but it just wasn't paying enough mm-hmm. and then the job in Dubai came up in like uh, I, I think I sometime in 2006 um, and um, we chatted with them they were looking for a sports guy, and no call, and uh, you know, a nice clinic, and so I started chatting with them, and it took about a year and a half before uh, I got a, uh, offered a visit to come come to Dubai. So I, I came there. So you came to Shadow first before you. Well, actually... they just invited me for a site visit. You okay. know, to like an in-person interview, and so mm-hmm. that was like December two thousand seven. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, they made an offer; it wasn't enough. And I said, "I'm sorry, it's not enough." And uh, and then finally, uh, they came back, and a little, a few months later, with a revised offer, and you know, it was still less than what I was making in the states. However, it was no call, and I was getting killed on call. And so I, I kind of put a value of, you know, how much less I'd be willing to take if I didn't have to take call. And so it pretty much worked out to be just about the same as what I was making here. Uh, but, you know, what I thought was that the experience itself would be pretty priceless. You know, I would not be able to have the experience of being overseas and practicing. What uh, is it about overseas that excites you so much versus practicing in the U.S.? Um, well, I mean, the problem in the U.S. at the time um, when I was practicing... Which is around it, 2005 to yeah, 7? 2000, yeah, and so, you know, the problem that I saw was that it was difficult to collect money from the insurers. We had more in our office, we had more and more people to chase after money. Uh, We had to see more and more patients. You know, sometimes I would see 50, 60 patients in a day, and 
you know, as you know, if you're spending five minutes with a patient, it's not much quality. I mean, we worked it out with other mid-levels and mm -hmm. other people to give a lot of face time to the patient so they actually feel like they're, uh, you know, getting great care. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, I paid everyone's uh, pensions and profit sharing plans. At the end of the day, when I, you know, want to put money in, you know, because you have to do this by law, you have to pay everybody else. Mm -hmm. and, and you at last. At the end of the day, I <laughs> paid myself last. And so many times I was not getting that much. And so, uh, so then kind of changed more to a cash model, uh, you know, doing contract work. And, uh, and that was better. Um, it, was, it was predictable, but it was brutal. I mean, I had to work a lot. And, you know, mm -hmm. when I was on call, I was like working all night. Mm. And so, um, you know, quality of life with my children was not so great. Um, and I hardly ever saw them. I would see them, you know, basically on my kids on the weekend. They'd be asleep by the time I got home and, you know, they wouldn't wake up at the time I would go to work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so... Um, so what was attractive was number one, um, it's regular hours. Number two, it was my focus on my specialty. Uh, you know, I didn't have to do joint replacements. Uh, unless, you know, I, I did shoulders, that was it. And so it was great, I just did sports. And so it was very attractive. And, and then the other piece is I, I really like people. And, um, you know, I, in my sh small experience in going to Ethiopia, uh, you know, I made some great friends that I still keep in touch with today. Mm. And so, um, and then the other piece is uh, other members of the family have, have done work like this too. Oh, yeah. okay. Like, um, I have an aunt, my dad's sister uh, is a nursing, she was a nursing professor. And she had done work all through North Africa, West Africa. She had a couple Fulbright fellowships. Mm. And, uh, you know, she had kind of a big influence on me. Um, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, even though he never finished medical school, he did a couple of years in Germany uh, back in the 30s. And, uh, and so I was always very impressed with him. You know, he still spoke fluent German when, mm. you know, when I, and he actually didn't pass away until my, right the year before I graduated. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty sad about that, mm. you know, because, you know, I really wanted him to see me graduate. Yeah. But, uh, you know, circumstances around the depression and, you know, these sorts of things made things quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And the political uh, the political situation in Germany at the time was also difficult for foreigners. There. And it doesn't seem like it's gotten better since yeah. uh, 2000, during that time and, and at this time. So you've always had kind of like an, an inner drive to kind of go overseas. And yeah. you mentioned that when you were in residency, yeah. you, you, were, you know, you did that, Ethiopia, so you kind of 
knew probably that you were going to do that eventually, but yeah. where it was and how I was yeah. going to do it, I right. had no idea. Right. Yeah. So yeah. you did. You knew that you probably weren't going to set down roots in yeah. uh, in the U.S. Yeah. In uh, one case or the other, and, and that's a contrast to a lot of doctors that when you graduate, you know you're going to settle somewhere in the U.S. Yeah. You don't even look beyond yeah. U.S. or where your hometown is or where you want to practice. So yeah. I just wanted to kind of know how did you get to Dubai and why did you you know do that yeah you know? it was it was uh i you know before you know i, I married my second wife uh I, I told her if you know this is even bef even before we had our first child who was born in 1999 i said look if you are not interested to live overseas and you don't want to go work overseas you we should not get married and uh, uh and she agreed but of course uh when the rubber hit the road, it was an entirely different story. I mean, she just wanted to really be in D.C. I mean, this is, you know, everything is there for her. So so when uh, did she move over there? What'd she you never know? moved. No. Uh, what's so interesting is uh, we, um, on the, uh, after I, I went for my interview December 2007, um, so about two months later, you know, I got served divorce papers. And it was before I even, you know, had a job overseas. But, uh, and so, yeah, so that, it was on Valentine's Day of 2008. Yeah. So February 14th, 2008. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At my, at my son's school in the pickup line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was... Oh, that's not surprising. Yeah. Okay. On, on Valentine's Day. That was so. the second wife. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. currently you're in your third yeah, marriage? Yeah, third wife, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. I see. But I, I, I've known her for a long time, so... Uh-huh. I met her when I was 14, so... 14? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. When did you get married the third time? Uh, July, July 1st of 2017. Oh, so, yeah. okay. So, yeah. year and a half. So she's in Dubai now. She's in Dubai. Yes. Okay. Having a great time. Yeah. You met her in Dubai. Or, no, yeah. no. You know her since you were fourteen. Yeah. I, I I I ran into her before I moved to Dubai. Uh huh. And, you know, uh, she worked on Capitol Hill, and uh, uh, during one of the visitations with uh, my children, uh, she just walked in. I hadn't seen her in like ten years. And last I heard, she was working in San Francisco, and then she just walked in. I hadn't seen her in a long time. And then yeah. I just went up to her and said hello. Uh-huh. Yeah. She said she didn't remember who I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> yeah. But she, she said, this is what she said. I didn't remember who you were, but I wanted to know who you were. That's how she cleaned it up. <laughs> that makes you feel pretty good then. Yeah, huh? no. I should, yeah. No, she's a great person. Uh, she's a... What does she do? Uh, she's a she's a PhD economist, and she uh, is she's a great leader and great manager. She used to work for the Congressional Research Service. Uh, she was also the director for the Center of the Book at the Library of Congress. That's what the job she had before she moved to Dubai. Yeah, and um, yeah, she's a great person. She always has been just somebody I looked up to. Yeah, even when I was 14. Wow. Yeah. Long lost love when you yeah. were 14 then, right? Yeah I, had, yeah. I had the love. She didn't know who I was, but it was okay. <laughs> it, 
it just took 30 years. Well, I can't wait to meet her. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, Yeah. I can't wait to meet her. So how did you uh, got interested in uh, biologic? Well, that's really interesting uh, because, and it's also kind of convoluted because the same guy who I spoke with in Kuala Lumpur, um, uh, maybe after I moved to Dubai, uh, I had a patient from Azerbaijan that I had taken care of, taken care of, whose husband was moving to Malaysia there in oil and gas business, and so her husband took a job in Kuala Lumpur, and I was trying to find someone to take care of her, and so this was maybe the beginning. No, this was like 2009. So I had been in Dubai for maybe a, well, maybe about a year. Yeah, about a year's time. And so I, I had this name, so I just called him up and I said, uh, um, you know, I have this patient, I've done a rotator cuff repair on her and I'm just trying to find someone to take care of her. You know, could you take care of her? I know you do knees, but I think you have a guy in your group that takes care of shoulders. And so he said, he said, yeah, 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 it's true. Yeah, yeah, we can take care of her. And then he said, um, uh, are you doing research? And I said, what? Am I doing research? Uh, I said, how can I do research? I'm too busy. I don't have time to do research. So I hadn't done research basically since I was a resident, and of which I didn't do even as much as I did as a medical student. And so, um, um, so going back on that, I mean, I really was a scientist at heart, but I was kind of just not doing science and not doing investigations, even though this is kind of a part of me. So, and then he said to me, he said, well, Bill, how, I mean, I said, I don't have time to do research. And he said, well, how do you know your patients are doing well? And I said, well, they don't come back. He's like, well, I can tell you just because they don't come back doesn't mean that they're doing well. They could be going to a guy across town. And then, and then after that, he mentioned, he's like, he said, do you know anything about stem cells? And so I said, no. I said, I don't know anything about stem cells. You know, what's stem cells? And so this is like 2009. And so he, he said, well, we've been doing some uh, uh, research on um, using stem cells to regrow uh, knee articular cartilage. And so this is an area that was of interest even in my clinical practice in the States. You know, we had autologous chondrocytes, uh, which we did. Um, and we did osteoarticular allograph. I did these kind of cases in the States. And so, um, you know, I didn't really think that there was any evidence of using stem cells to regrow in the articular cartilage. So I, I was just very skeptical. So he sent me like two papers. One paper was published in 2007, which was an animal model, a goat model. And then he sent me this other paper uh, that he published in two th- that same year, in 2009. It was like a, a pilot study. It was like five patients with... Uh, and who is this doctor? His, na- his name is K. Young-Saw, uh, Dr. K. Young-Saw. Oh. And so I read the papers. I was like, this is... I looked at the stuff. It looked like so good. It's like horrible disease. And then it looked like pristine cartilage. Uh-huh. And I know that... You know, we, we did microfracture, we did ACI, and a lot of times uh, it didn't look that good. And so when I saw it, I was like, this is just total bullshit. 
and I just didn't believe I was very dismissive and so uh, but he didn't give up he kept harassing me he's like you know he's like I want you to come out and visit me like a like a month later he said I want you to come to Kuala Lumpur and visit me <laughs> and I said I mean you know for what I mean you know this stuff isn't real blah 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 and say he said we're doing a randomized control trial uh, you know, 50, uh, 25 patients in each group. I want you to come see the patients. I want you to look at the files. You know, I mean, this is real. This stuff works. And so um, uh, I go out there, and this is 2010 by, by now. It's 2010. So I go out there and visit, and I still didn't believe it. I looked at the files. I looked at the surgery. What was he doing? Was he just he, doing PRP? Was no, he no. Doing? He was using peripheral blood progenitor cells. Oh. And uh, he would do, he wasn't doing microfracture, he was doing drilling because his early work showed that when he did microfracture, he would get tufts of cartilage that grew out of the holes, but they didn't coalesce. Mm. And so he started drilling closer together. He used pretty, he had a drill, a two millimeter drill bit, uh, a drill, burr, and he would put holes two millimeters apart. So the, the cartilage looked like Swiss cheese. And I saw cases where he drilled the entire knee. And so the, I'm just the like, tibia and the femoral yeah, component? Yeah, I mean, I've seen cases that he, I'm just like, this guy is out of his damn mind. And so, but uh, I went back again. I didn't believe he harassed me to come back. So I came back again. And uh, by that time, I had already started. Uh, collecting outcomes for all my patients. I started collecting outcomes in 2010. And um, it was me doing it with my assistant, but uh, we were collecting. And this is uh, the year that we started, we did our first study. We did this retrospective study with the University of Pittsburgh. It's called Earth Study. Uh, and uh, early arthritis therapies after ACL tear. And so that's, that's how I started doing research again. And uh, it was a little retrospective study, uh, feasibility study, but we did it. We got the IRB approval, uh, which was painful. Um, um, was the research on, on stem cell at that time? or No, no? this was just looking at, this was just something totally different. So, but I still was talking to Saw. And so okay. uh, then he said, I want you to come. We're doing a lot of biopsies this, 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 this next two months. I want you to come out for six weeks. And this, you can scrub in with me. And some of the patients, will they have one knee that is the control, and the other knee is the the the, the treatment. Yeah. Arm. And so, I so I went out there again. Uh, so, so I went out there three times. And then the third time I went, I think this is like 2011 by now. And um, and then I was looking at it straight in the face. I was looking at these cartilage regeneration and the stuff looked like perfect. I mean, like, looked perfect. And um, and I understood his process, how he did it. He used, it, he used a machine called an apheresis machine. Uh, he gave uh, granulocyte colony stimulating factor for three doses before and then put the person on the machine and collects all the cells. Oh and then God. they separate it out and then they give the cells little by little, little over time. And so after I went and I saw the biopsies, we do the biopsies, we prepare. I look at the cartilage, we do the amino, immunohistochemistry standing for type two collagen, the saffron node to look at the gags. You know, you know, we did all this stuff. Looking, uh, also looking at type one collagen, 
and the stuff was growing back it was like type type 2 collagen oh my god and with good gags yeah. too yeah. and so so this is kind of like the holy grail you know and so I, I became a total believer and so you became a total believer in 2011 yeah so yeah 2011 I became a total believer it took me a long time but uh and then after that, uh, he gave me permission to use this technique royalty-free uh, in Dubai. Uh, and uh, I spent two years fighting the regulatory people because at that time, uh, no stem cell treatments were allowed. And, uh, and so I fought them until 2013 inside a healthcare city. Uh, the last approval I got, I got an approval to do it because the surgery is a standard surgery that we normally do. The only difference is just giving the adjuvant uh, cells right. instead of not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so the IRB basically came back and said, you, can, you have permission to do it. However, uh, you have to pay for the control group, pay everything. Mm -hmm. And you also have to pay for um, the, the intervention arm. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so... What we had proposed to them was that, you know, it's standard care that we're doing in the control arm, is standard care that we're doing in the, the intervention arm, except for the cells. So we'll just pay for the cells. Mm -hmm. And But they didn't agree to that. And they said you need to raise about 1.2 million uh, dirham, which is close to about $4,000, Yeah. And... Um, you know, because that's how much it would cost just for the, you know, for the control group. Uh -huh. And um, we raised the money, uh, but but then I got in trouble from my organization because I asked the wrong person to give us the money. They agreed to give us the money, but it was from the wrong family or something. And, uh, and so... And, and then what happened? And then about two days before I flew back, <laughs> Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, she was a, she's a U.S. trained rheumatologist, but from India. She called me. She said, "I hear you're leaving," and I said, "Yeah, I'm leaving on the 26th." She said, "Why don't you come by and look at my new clinic? Maybe you want to, you know, work with me." I said, "Okay, fine. I'll come over and look." It was, you know, standard clinic. She says, "You know, she made a good." I didn't really want to go. You know, she made a decent offer. And then this is when I really started. I started doing, you know, PRPs and BMCs before. Uh, but this is when I really started doing a lot. And at the time, some of the third-party payers, uh, like Emirates Airlines, they were actually paying for these treatments at first. So I had most of my practice was Emirates. And so I, I did quite a few. I did quite a bit mm -hmm. after I started with her. Yeah. And, and then I also took the protocol because Healthcare City, where I was working, has a different regulatory body than Dubai Health Authority, Dubai proper. And so we redid the entire protocol um, and uh, submitted to DHA. But then they also came back and, and didn't give us, they, they just said, they didn't say no, but they didn't say yes either. And uh, so I stayed with her. We started. Uh, we worked a lot on the quality control stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we were planning on getting an ABB certification for cellular therapy for our facility, and um, you know, working on quality management system, um, quantifying everything we were injecting. So this is when it all started, like 2013. 
Okay. And um, um, and then um, all of a sudden I got a new offer uh, to set up a facility. And uh, uh, what year was that? So that was 2016. Okay. So so between 2013 and 2016. Mm-hmm. So that's what about uh, four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So. So you set up Emerson Integra at yeah. that time. Yeah. I see. So, well, I, I, I actually wanted to set up a hospital for regenerative medicine, which was which would be like a 20,000 square, it's not a huge hospital, but a 20,000 square foot hospital. And um, uh, unfortunately, the funders did not, uh, I, did, I guess I didn't have a good enough track, rec- track record uh, for them to give me all that money for the big hospital. And so I came up with a plan B. I knew that there was a, a surgery center that was for sale, and uh, and so I made a, a different plan: acquire the surgery center and then build an adjacent clinic to the surgery center. And that's what Emerson Tegra yeah. Multidisciplinary yeah. Clinic is now. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness! I did not know that. Yeah. I thought you just went straight to there and started with Emerson and no. built all that. No, we, the initial plan was to build the hospital for regenerative medicine and uh, with all the different specialties because by that time I had already started uh, uh, working on my board certification in regenerative medicine and I knew that there were many applications of regenerative medicine uh, just not in orthopedics, you know, for neurology, cardiology, endocrine, uh, neurosurgery, uh, you know, really every ophthalmology, aesthetics, every specialty. So the idea was to set up a hospital that would be focused just on regenerative medicine and get rid of the allopathic care and just do all regenerative medicine. Well, you, when I first met you and we talked, and you, you're you an orthopedic surgeon, yeah. but what you said was really kind of striking was that you didn't want to put any cortisone in any joints or anywhere in the body, yeah. and, and all you wanted to do was to do something that is more uh, uh, regenerative and treatment. So can you elaborate on why you don't want to put uh, cortisone and where where the really the traditional treatment is you know cortisone for pain in the joint well I can just uh, uh, it's really I have a really easy way to talk about that and um, and it's pro- probably one of the main reasons I stopped doing knee replacements and uh, because it seemed like to me, I guess, you know, Albert Einstein says the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And so, um, you know, I had a group of patients that, you know, it seemed like we had this, you know, this pathway of treatment. Um, uh, basically, someone that came in, they didn't have mechanical. They had maybe they had a uh, mi- mi- mild to moderate osteoarthritis. Uh, they had a non-mechanical, uh, you know, meniscus tear. Uh, so they had a meniscus tear, but it's more of a degenerative type tear. Mm-hmm. And so, standard treatment for this, as far as what I learned, uh, was to give a corticosteroid shot. So you give one, then three months later it wears off. You give another. This one, maybe it lasts, you know, six weeks, four weeks. Then you give another one, it doesn't work at all. Then so, what do you do from that point? 
uh, next thing we we did is do knee arthroscopy and it's actually covered by insurance so we go in do meniscus debridement um, and maybe we do a chondroplasty synovectomy and and then um, you know some patients did do fine I would say probably a majority of them did well maybe 60% but then you have this other 40% that especially with the older people you know they're 45 or 50 or 55 they don't do well with that treatment and then the next thing you know six months later a year later you're doing a knee replacement and what the 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 turning point for me was when I did this pathway on someone that was like 42 and then I exhausted all the treatment. And the next thing I know, I'm doing a, a, a joint replacement on a 42 year old. And this was 2005, I can remember, I can remember the patient because I, I didn't feel good about it. But, you know, this is what we're doing. And, um, and then all the patients that, you know, not all the patients do well after joint replacements. You know, especially if it's workers comp, there are other mitigating factors, you know, they're, they may not be healthy, overweight, you know, diabetic, type 2 diabetic, uh, hypertension, you know. And so um, it just didn't seem to be working in my mind. And so the thing that I substituted for corticosteroids, uh, I just started doing HA instead. And I found that... What's H.A.? Hyaluronic acid. And so it's... Uh, I think it's a regenerative treatment, too. Uh, and, um, you know, H.A. as well as prolotherapy. You know, I started doing that in Dubai. I'd never heard about it before. I started doing prolotherapy in uh, um, 2009. Uh, I started doing prolotherapy. An orthopedic surgeon doing prolotherapy? Yeah. That, that's a yeah. new thing. Where'd yeah. you learn prolotherapy from? I actually learned from Sean Mulvaney, uh, oh. who is... Uh, who also, is, uh, I fought well for him. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he treated me for something different, not NEOA, but he treated me for SI joint. I took one injection, never had problems again. And so so I started using it, studied, uh, and actually there's a guy, David Robago, at the University of Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, who has done so many different randomized control trials on using uh, dextrose prolotherapy for knee osteoarthritis and is demonstrated without, uh, you know, the methodology studies could be better, but pretty good. He's demonstrated without a reasonable doubt that actually it is pretty effective for treating NEOA. So you started doing yeah. uh, prolotherapy yeah. or 25% dextrose. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then is that during the time that you met the Malaysia doctor? <laughs> yeah. That's actually, I probably started doing that even before. Yeah. And so... I, I pretty much, by the time I was in, in UAE, I pretty much did not do many steroid injections for the knee. Yeah, unless it was in stage already. Mm-hmm. And um, we, I, was, I still use steroids for the shoulder, but very low doses. Uh, you know, very dilute uh, because you don't need a lot of steroid to get the effects. Mm-hmm. But for the shoulder, I still use it, but that's pretty much it. And um, so yeah. it was the last knee replacement you did. Two thousand five. That was the last one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And if it's intense, that's been biologic. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. How about shoulder? 
Shoulders, I, I do shoulders, and I've done some recently. Uh, arthroscopic uh, shoulder? Oh, I do lots of arthroscopic yeah. shoulder, but shoulder replacements, uh-huh. I do them. Yeah, and sometimes in younger patients, too. Uh-huh. You know, totals as well as resurfacing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it, it tends to work pretty good, uh, uh-huh. you know, even in younger patients. So why is steroid bad? What does it do? Uh, well, uh, I guess... Uh, you know, the best evidence that we've seen is this nice paper from 2017 uh, that was in JAMA mm-hmm. uh, for knee osteoarthritis where they had, uh, uh, they used triencinolone versus uh, saline and repeated dosing, you know, steroid injection, a triencinolone injection every three months. And at the end of two years, uh, uh, they showed a pretty significant uh, difference in cartilage loss. Uh, so I think that study uh, pretty much is a well-powered study and pretty much demonstrated what we all kind of knew in the back of our mind that steroids probably weren't very healthy for synovial joints, at least not to treat degenerative conditions. And uh, that study showed 30% loss of cartilage volume. And so it kind of that study was really even that was like the the nail in the coffin uh, for me using steroids in knee for sure. I, I I can't even remember the last time I've used steroids. It's been a long long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and then as far as the other biologics, I, you know, I think it's kind of a dealer's choice. I think they all work, and I think they all work pretty synergistically. And if you couple that with uh, using ultrasound and making it a very comfortable and, um, you know, not pleasant, but a more comfortable experience for the patient, mm-hmm. uh, I think that uh, it's, it's like magic. So where, where do you think the, the future of the stem cell biologic is heading now? Where, where are we? Are we just at the tip tip of the iceberg or are we making gains? And where do you see we go in like five years in the orthopedic world? You think that more orthopedic? Well, this, that's the first question. The second question is, you think more orthopedic surgeon will be embracing this in the U.S.? Well, I mean, the, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, if uh, you look at the numbers, uh, the amount of clinics that are do- offering these kinds of treatments, uh, you look at the meetings and looking at the attendance. You know, the first Toby meeting I attended was in 2013. Uh, it was still in Los Angeles, and it was still a relatively small meeting. And now you go, it's, you know, 600 people. Uh, and, and now you, you see IOF as well. Uh, this also started as a smaller meeting, and now it's big. Uh, you see, what about the AOS? Are they talking more about no, no, uh, yes. PRP or stem cell at For all? sure, for sure. There, there was a, uh, a very, there's a, a I, I would say a landmark article that was uh, published last year uh, in um, JBJS, uh, you know, underlying the fact that we need to have better evidence to support uh, us doing these kinds of procedures. But let me just say something about that. I think that in 2019, the level of scientific investigations uh, that uh, are being done, especially in the area of orthobiologics, eclipse 
the work that has been done for any treatment that orthopedic surgeons uh, have done in the past, uh, to be honest. Uh, if you look, uh, if, if we do a search on PRP and degenerative joint disease, uh, I believe you'll see probably upwards of 5,000 to 6,000 you know, scientific peer-reviewed articles. And so do we have perfect evidence? Do we have great methodology in our studies that uh, irrefutably uh, validate us using biologics uh, for treatment of musculoskeletal conditions? I can't say that it is irrefutable, but I think that the available evidence that we have, especially with the meta-analyses, uh, suggests that, uh, well, number one, we know that it's safe. I mean, this is absolutely clear. You know, one of the things uh, that we see in uh, allopathic medicine, we see all sorts of complications uh, related and deaths uh, related to the use of medica medications and procedures. Uh, so, without a doubt, orthobiologics are quite safe. Uh, number two, I think uh, we have a growing body of knowledge uh, that is demonstrating that. Um, uh, we see a significant uh, difference as compared to some of the other treatments. And we know that they're safe. And, you know, when we have more people doing it, I think it will be far more sustainable. And so right now we're treating symptomatic disease, but for the future, we'll, we'll probably uh, be able to treat earlier. Like today with uh, Wayne McElwraith's uh, uh, presentation, the question they asked was the question that I actually uh, gave them that question because uh, I really believe we have to have better diagnostic tools to know when a problem starts, just like the MRI has helped us. Mm -hmm. Like before, we wouldn't see osteotrophic changes on X radiographs until it's more moderate to severe disease. But now we're getting an MRI, we see degenerative meniscus tear. This is probably the earliest stage of osteoarthritis. And I think a few people like Jerry, uh, Malanga mentioned that, and I, I totally believe it. And that's why I think HA works for degenerative meniscus tears because uh, it's just the earth, you're just treating the osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. You're treating the synovium. Uh, you're you know uh, improving the joint hemost uh, hemostasis. Uh, you're improving the biology, and so uh, I think. Right now, we're treating symptomatic things. I think in the future, when our diagnostic capabilities improve, especially with biomarkers and other things, uh, it may not be biomarkers. It may be thermography. It may be uh, uh, elastography. Uh, you know, right. uh, it may right. be something that we just don't something accept. Something so simple, something too. Maybe so simple. just a blood work or yeah. something that yeah. may, or maybe just from the joint fluid, yeah. something that we find from the joint fluid yeah. that will be a marker for that. So I want to kind of focus on kind of mm -hmm. like the orthopedic society. Where are they at in biologic? Because uh, you know, because this will influence their uh, procedures, of course, and their surgery. So, are uh, is that are you the one percent of all the orthopedic surgeon, or or more ten percent? What are their views on this, and how are they em are they embracing it, or or not? I think they're embracing it slowly. Um, like I said, uh, there was a landmark paper last year, 2018, looking yeah. at, you know, how we need to report. It's the, me it's the MEBO. It's called the Minimum Information for Biologic uh, 
outcomes and wow. looks at all the things that we need to record yeah. to put in our studies. Yeah. Uh, so I think they realize that it's, at least the leaders, the leaderships, uh, the leadership, I think, are very aware that this is a, a very transformational uh, 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 change to, you know, fundamental change to the way orthopedics will be practiced. And I think the leaders do. And I think when you look at the thought leaders within the academy, uh, I, you see a lot of these guys, you know, actually doing the treatments. And so, uh, you know, the president, uh, last year's president, William Maloney from Stanford, he's doing a trial that the saw, the K. Young saw trial uh, oh, at really? Stanford. It's, it's between Stanford and at the Andrews Institute. Mm -hmm. And so they got a big grant from uh, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. They're doing 100 patients, the FDA. Uh, so SAW's trial is now in the U.S. now. And, oh, my God. And it's God. A, a, stage, uh, a, st a stage 2B. So they accepted all of their early studies. Yeah. You know, their stage, their, their phase one, their phase 2A uh, randomized controlled trial, they let them come into the U.S. Foreign data uh, for a, a phase 2B trial. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. That is really exciting. And you got the president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons as a co-investigator. Oh, that is exciting. Yeah. So you think that that is what's going to happen when the president of AOS is doing this and that may perhaps change... Uh, 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 the the insurance uh, coverage for biologic. That's a very that's a yeah. very interesting question and and one I don't think I have a, a very good answer. And it's not only people like that. Uh, also, the former editor in chief of Arthroscopy uh, from Wake Forest, um, you know Gary Paling. He's also uh, one that's been pushing uh, orthobiologics. Uh, you know, they have the, the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine headed by Tony Atala. And, uh, you know, he is, in his editorials, he is pushing it. He knows it's a total game changer. And it's going to change the way that we do things. And so what do I think is next? I think that next we will, instead of treating end-stage disease, we will intervene earlier mm. as we improve our diagnostic capabilities to know when people are in trouble. And, and I think, uh, but again, the orthobiologics, uh, bio biologics in general, just the icing on the cake. There's so many other areas that we can change in our lifestyle that will make uh, a considerable and transformative change for people's lives. And, you know. And what is that? It's all the simple stuff. It's, yeah. it's diet, getting enough sleep and rest, uh, drinking a lot of water, uh, Getting eating nutrient-rich foods, uh, and uh, you know these are these are things that we can handle. And I can tell you that most of the time, if you can handle this, uh, patients will do better anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in, in my practice, we and also just also doing hormone therapy, we know that uh, this patient just losing ten percent of their body weight, yeah. and you change nothing in what you do. Uh, you know, in a patient that has. Uh, like knee pain or back pain and you don't change anything and all they do is just lose 10% of their body weight their pain improve yeah. and their infl inflammation level improve they're not taking as many pain medicine or anti-inflammatory so there's got to be something that is 
changing the inflammatory markers yeah. uh, as modulating that was just lifestyle changes such as uh, weight loss. Yeah. And, and I believe that's probably have to do with some fat loss content. And we know that flat fat do produce an inflammatory uh, component uh, yeah. with that. And that, and so um, life, I'm glad you, we talked about that. So lifestyle change is something you can do yeah. right now. Yeah. You don't need to insurance to cover for that and just Got to go out there and move, right? Yeah, take it, care just, of yourself. Yeah, yeah, just movement and and eat eat right and you know and sleep sleep. That's something that you haven't done well the last couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying. I've been laying. In well, the bed. for the record, yeah. he he flew here about what uh, two days ago, and now he's flying out again. So he's only been in the U.S. now for two days. Yeah, and uh, back to uh, Dubai, and I have the privilege of seeing him here and interviewing him as well. So I'm really glad that we get to get to know who you are and obviously your accomplishment and your input. And, uh, and um, you, what do you, if you had to give one advice to a patient or, or maybe multiple advice, what would you advise them now to do about their joint health? I think it's just uh, pay attention to the lifestyle. I think uh, having good relations uh, at home with your friends and family, I think this is very important, being connected to other people um, and just really just taking care of yourself. I, I think the orthobiologics, as far as how we're applying it today, I think it's just the, it's the cherry on top of the cake. Um, I think uh, all these other things and how we are connected to others and um, you know, how we support each other and relate to each other. I think all these things are so much more important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, an honor and privilege to be able to uh, have input and impact on the way people live and make a positive change. It's just like uh, I could just do it all day, every day. And it's just such a fulfilling um, it's just so fulfilling to be able to just make just a huge difference in someone's life. Yeah, it's very fulfilling. Are you, you see, foresee yourself coming back to the U.S.? Could be. Uh, it could be. You know, I like the lifestyle in uh, Dubai. Uh, we work hard, but uh, in past years, when I didn't, uh, when I wasn't running a facility. Uh, I would take off a couple of days a week. I would be at the beach every week, and I felt I felt like I was on vacation, like all the time. And that's and that's actually what I was trying to achieve. I was just trying to achieve being a, you know, working but feeling like I'm, I'm on vacation every day. Are you doing that now? Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed a little bit, but uh, uh -huh. but uh, you know. I have this big drive to make this thing work and be successful and, you know, uh, contribute to the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, you mean Emirates and Tegra and the Multi Clinic? No, no, uh, just contribute to the overall conversation of transforming the way we treat people. And, uh, and I just want it to be substantive and something that. Uh, uh, I look at that makes a big difference, you know, not only for me and patients, but even for other providers and doctors and practitioners and, you know, 
I just want to make a difference. I, you know, I want to make some long lasting contribution that, uh, you know, uh, you wanted to leave a legacy. Oh, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He has a good per, a great person that, you know, contributed to a lot of other people. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, just be of contribution. Wow, and I think you're you're uh, in a position to do that with what you've accomplished and your position in your society and your uh, position in the world uh, at this point. I've heard about you before I met you years, years, hmm. years ago, and so uh, and I hope that you will achieve that. And I'll be honored to say that I've met the legacy and the the legend, and I know him. Uh. <laughs> We're already great friends, and I appreciate you and uh, your energy and your love of life and love of people, and and you and you're certainly making a huge difference. Talking about things that are, you know, sometimes people will say are private, but you make it okay to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, well, it's you know, really there's cool. a recent study that came out that said that it uh, uh, for longevity and for happiness. Uh, and quality of life that if you have sexual activity four times a week that that is one of the component of happiness ah. and increasing quality of life so you know that's you know I think that that's kind of like one factor check there for yeah. you know better lifestyle and prevention yeah. and maybe perhaps that will help with pain as well too yeah for sure yeah 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 <laughs> so no but thank you uh, very much uh, for your time and you know, that you gave me to sit with me. Well, thank you for being here. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164.